Wednesday, April 8. This morning, we left San Bernardino for Texas after bidding farewell to many of our friends. We started and had considerable trouble with the wild horses. We came three miles to Matthew's Mill and bought 600 pounds of flour at $4 a hundred. We came on then to the Santa Ana River. It being very deep and running swift, we had some trouble crossing with our wild horses. Mr. Kirkland's horses got tangled up in the harness, and he had to jump out in the deep water to straighten them. We came on two or three miles and camped at the foot of a hill, where Mr. Hamilton's and Mr. Garton's families were waiting for us. Some of our friends came with us to see us safely encamp the first night. We turned our horses out and got supper. April 9. Cool and cloudy. We were up early fixing to start. Mr. Curtin and Mr. Airfoot came to camp and stayed all night with us. After breakfast, they harnessed up to start and had some fun with the Bronco horses. They kicked the harness off as fast as they put it on. We came 20 miles over tolerable good roads to the San Jacinto River, an ugly stream and a bad crossing, with a steep bank coming down to the deep water. The horses being wild and unruly, we were some time crossing. Mr. Kirkland's team stalled, and Frank had to pull out with his mules. We drove up a few yards from the river and camped for the night in a low, flat place with weeds and grass knee-deep. They turned the horses out and prepared for the night in a low, flat place with weeds and grass knee-deep. I feel very much discouraged and would rather turn back. During these two days, the Shacklefords were in the indigenous territories of the Tongva, the Yuhavatam Mariengayam Toronto, the Keech, the Mayomkawichum Luiseno, and the Kahuida. I'm Jen Globius, and this is the Halanaki Deep Dive, a podcast about the process of mapping and analysis for historical and archaeological research using open source tools. In this episode, I'll discuss the beginning of the Shackleford's 1868 journey back to Missouri from via Texas and who was with them on this trip. I also have an update on my progress tagging places and Ruth Shackleford's 1868 diary and a little bit of contemplation about lying maps. Let's dive in. In the intro, I read the first two entries of Ruth Shackelford's 1868 diary, where she describes the first two days on the road towards Texas, leaving from San Bernardino, California. Similar to her 1865 diary, Ruth mentions leaving friends behind, but the process seems more orderly, except for the wild horses. At this point, the Shackelfords know what they're doing, They spent months on the road getting to California from Missouri in 1865, and so it's a known process. Uh, They do stop off for 600 pounds of flour, and then they move on down the road. They cross streams in these first two days, and they make camp. And the only thing that seems to be a problem are those wild horses that they presumably had just purchased for this trip. Yet, even though this was a known process that The Shackelfords had spent months on the road in 1865. That last line of the April 9th entry, quote, 
I feel very much discouraged and would rather turn back, unquote, makes me wonder about Ruth Shackelford's mindset as they started out in their wagon again. The first impression Ruth had of San Bernardino in November 1865 was not encouraging, and the Shackelfords had intended to go on to Los Angeles. At least that's what she said at the end of the 1865 diary. But they stayed on in San Bernardino for two years until they decided to head back east in 1868. And at this point, two days on the road, Ruth wishes to stay where they were, or at least to not be traveling. And I wonder how much of the problems, especially the, the close family deaths that happened on the 1865 journey, how much that influenced Ruth's mindset at like two days into their trip back east. So one thing that was very evident in the 1865 diary was that Ruth spent, she made several mentions wishing they were back in old Missouri, wishing for people or things in Missouri as they were heading west. Now, so far into working with the 1868 diary, I haven't noticed her thinking fondly about California um, or wishing to be there. So despite this last line saying, I wish we weren't traveling or to be back where we were, that seems to be very transitory. Ruth Shackelford instead seems to just be moving forward. Now, I don't think in 1868 she mentioned being back in Missouri either, but that might have been because they were moving towards there. So in 1868, they decide to head back east, but they decide to go a different route, so go south and go to Texas with the idea that some among their group had family there and maybe they would settle there. The Shacklefords eventually uh, leave Texas and and do go back to Missouri, although I don't, the Bruce diary ends with them still in Texas, but they're on the road. I wonder if the act of heading back towards what was known made it so that Ruth didn't write, write any mentions of wanting to be back in Missouri because she was heading in that direction. I don't know, but that's something I, I ponder as I look as I read through her 1868 diary. As Sherry L. Smith writes in the introduction to the Bison Books edition of Volume Nine of the Covered Wagon Women, which has Ruth Shackelford's two diary, diaries within it, in her 1865 diary, Ruth Shackelford mentions homes and details about the homes they pass almost obsessively. I'll look for those mentions so far. It hasn't been as evident as it is early on in the 1865 diary. And it seems to me like by the time they did reach California in 1865, Ruth was not describing homes in such detail. And it might have been her weariness from the entire trip. But this is a topic I might explore further in the future. And the way to do that would be to tag any mentions of homes and descriptions of homes so that I can then quantify how often does did Ruth write about homes and how much time did she spend on talking about homes relative to other topics. So that's something I'm, I could go back, I might go back and do after I'm done tagging all the 
all the places and locations that I need for the mapping. So that's something I'm definitely interested in. Now, as for the Shackelford's time in California, I know practically nothing about it. From Roof's 1868 diary, we don't get any information about their time in California. Of course, this was Roof's pri private diary, not intended for publication in any way. And she knew, knew those details. They were all her life. I'm not quite sure why she decided to diary the journeys. And I wonder if she just always journaled and we only have the the days for when they were traveling. I, I really wonder about the process of how we got these diaries. And that's something I'm going to look at in the future. How did this actually get to the point where it could be published. And the editor of, of the Covered Wagon Women series did post a little bit about it in his notes about the diary. So I'll talk about that in a future episode. So we don't know much about their time in California. And I can see a little bit more um, by looking at genealogical records on familytree.org. And from those records, I can see that Ruth and Frank Shackelford had a child in 1866 who is unnamed and listed as deceased, which I suspect means a miscarriage or stillbirth, that the child passed along soon after birth. They also, while in California, they had a daughter, Ada, who was born in 1867. And there's nothing in Ruth's diary mentioning that she had a young child, she had a baby, maybe going on to a toddler during this 1868 trip. She just says, our children, because of course they're known to her. But based on Ruth's diary, I would never have known about either child. Ruth did give a bit more information about the people who she was traveling with on Sunday, April 12th, so a few days into the trip. Ruth lists who they were traveling with, and I quote, they are... John S. Hamilton and seven children, one grown daughter and two grown sons and four small children, and Charlie Copley, a young man he has with him, Abraham K. Kirkland and wife and three small children, and Henry Coggins with him to help drive his team, John Barton and wife and two small children, Henry Birdwell and old Mr. Crowden with him, A.B. Gatewood and three children and George Ridgway with them, and our own family and John Smith with us to drive one wagon. We have seven wagons and 56 horses in our train, end quote. So by my calculations, counting up those people, at, at this point, a few days in, there are 27 people plus the Shackelfords. And I know how many Shackelfords there should be from the genealogical records. So there should be Frank Shackelford, Ruth Shackelford, the five children who made the 1865 trip, and young Ada, who was born in California. So there, at this point, there were 36 people taking off in this group uh, for Texas. But this number fluctuates as more people join or leave their group. Um, old Mr. Crowden doesn't make it very long. I think in a few days after this, they come to a desert. and He's like, nope, don't want to do that. So of this group of people, I don't believe the Hamiltons or Bartons were part of their travel in 1865, but I'll know more about that. I can go back and check that a bit better 
after I tagged people in the 1865 diary to see if there are any mentions. I just don't remember them. The Kirklands, as I mentioned in the last episode, traveled in the same wagon train as the Shackelfords in 1865, and they seem to have become close friends through the journey. And this is evident since they actually travel with the Shackelfords back to Missouri via Texas. A.B. Gatewood, of course, was the Shackelfords' brother-in-law, although his wife, who was Frank Shackelford's sister, Anne Shackelford Gatewood, died during the 1865 journey. So by my count, and according to genealogical records, four of the Gatewood children survived the 1865 journey and were alive at that point. But on April 12th, Bruce Shackelford says that uh, three children were part of this trip. And there's... She doesn't list the children, but looking at FamilySearch.org, I suspect that the youngest surviving child in 1865, James, who was four in 1865, I wonder if he had passed on in during their time in, in California. The information about James says that he passed away in 1900, which is not specific, and there are no sources about him later, so I wonder if... There was just no record. The other three uh, Gatewood children have records about them in Texas, which is where the Gatewoods end up staying. And I found a few other problems with the records in FamilySearch.org that need fixing, such as it lists Ada Shackelford's birthplace as Missouri, which is the impression you would get if you look just at census records, because you can look at 1860, you see the Shackelfords are Missouri. I haven't seen the 1870 records, but 1880, it also shows the Shackelfords in Missouri. And so if that's the only source of information you have, if you don't know about this diary, then you'd assume that the Shackelfords stayed in Missouri over those 20 years. But since I do have this information, I plan to update, help update the records in FamilySearch.org. Um, FamilySearch.org is freely available. It's through the Church of Latter-day Saints um, because they're very interested in genealogical records. And it's been such a help for me just understanding the Shacklefords and Gatewoods and their families that I'll, I'll probably give back try to give back a bit by updating their records and adding the information from Ruth Shackelford's diary because I think it's a very valuable reference for them. So a little bit about my work. Um, I am currently adding entries from the 1868 diary into Node Goat Now and adding place objects for all the locations mentioned there. Same process I was using with the 1865 diary. But I think I need to do a little more thinking regarding certainty and uncertainty of places, which I've talked about in previous episodes. First, a little bit about why classifying uncertainty and certainty for these locations is important. And it's simply this. All maps lie. Or to be more accurate, since I'm talking about truthfulness and accuracy and things like that, because maps are representations of reality, the map maker has to, de- has to decide how to represent whatever is the focus of the map. For example, a road atlas doesn't usually display information about population on 
map itself. It might have some indication, but it doesn't show every single house. Extra information about population would interfere with the purpose of a road atlas, which is knowing how to navigate roads. And that's why you don't see information of population on Google Maps or whatever map routing software you use on your phone, because population information does not serve the purpose of that software or the maps the software provides. There's a great book called How to Lie with Maps by Mark Monnier. Uh, it's now in its third edition. I own the second edition. And this book, How to Lie with Maps, describes the ways in which maps can be deceptive, either intentionally or not. Mostly, people who make maps do not intend to deceive their readers, but because maps are not reality, they are a representation of reality, they simplify things to make the point of the map. So if you want roads, you're going to put roads on there. You're not going to put necessarily a bunch of other features, and so on and so forth. As consumers of information, including maps, it's important to understand how to read those maps and what they might be leaving out. Um, and just as a side note, as a companion, I also recommend the book How to Lie with Statistics, which is a great guide on how to be a consumer of statistical information. And I'll put links to both books in the show notes. So why am I talking about deceptive maps? Well, mostly because I intend to make maps about the Shackelford's journeys that are truthful about ambiguity in the data. So I want to make it clear how unclear the data can be. So as I go through Ruth Shackelford's diary entries and tag places and collect locations of those places so I can later create maps... There is a lot of uncertainty in that process. I have a lot of uncertainty about the data, how well what I'm actually recording actually indicates where the Shacklefords went or how closely. And so I've talked a bit about how I intend to visualize location uncertainty in an earlier earlier episode, mostly mostly that I intend to use fuzziness and create wider paths instead of using a very sharp, thin line or dot to indicate uh, the paths, just that the amount of width and blurriness will indicate how much uncertainty there is about the location. Because when you have like a very small dot or a very sharp line, Our brains read that and say, hey, this is like the exact location. And I really want to emphasize with these maps that we don't know exactly where they went. And that's okay. Ambiguity exists, especially in historical records. And especially in a private diary that was not meant for publication or necessarily for anyone else to read. And so there's a lot... I intend to visualize that uncertainty because I I don't know what's going on and I want it I want to help reinforce that it's okay that we don't know. But I'm still not sure that I'm currently collecting uncertainty information that will help me visualize certainty and uncertainty of locations in the maps I create. So I'm going to keep thinking about this issue and I might adjust the tagging system I use in NodeGoat again, which means going through all the locations I've already tagged. 
So I should do this before I'm completely done tagging places um, and before I start tagging anything else because that'll make everything more confusing. If you're a supporter on Patreon, I'll post a video illustrating the issue of location accuracy in the next week or two. So if you want to see it, you can join us on Patreon. So to sum up, I talked a bit about Ruth Shackelford's reluctance to travel and about who was with the Shackelfords as they started back east from California. As part of that, I also talked about how I'm not exactly sure how many Gatewood children were in the group. Were there three or four at this point? Ruth says three, and I'm, I'm going to take her word for it. It makes me wonder about genealogical records overall that are available on FamilySearch.org. So useful, but have to take everything with a grain of salt. Don't take everything as gospel. Finally, I talked about map ambiguity and a little bit about why I'm trying to be careful about categorizing uncertainty, because I want to make good maps that don't make it seem like I know exactly where the Shacklefords went, because I certainly will not know that. I think I'll have a, a decent idea, and it'll be enough to make maps that I'm proud of, but I also want to visualize uncertainty in those maps, because I want to make that obvious. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. You can email questions or comments to deepdive at helenaki.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GIS. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in this episode are available on the Helenaki website and on Patreon. If you enjoy the Helenaki Deep Dive, please recommend it to a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find it. You can also support the Helenaki Deep Dive financially by becoming a supporter on Patreon. For as little as $2 per month, you get access to behind-the-scenes content, while higher tiers of support include digital copies of maps and other visualizations related to the podcast. The Helenaki Deep Dive is written and produced by me, Jen Glavius of The Helenaki. The theme music is Deep Ocean Instrumental by Dan O of danosongs.com. Thanks for listening.